This is Germ Warfare, the battle of ideas. Hi, my name is Germ. This is Germ Warfare, the battle of ideas. You are the interim leader of the DA. Well, I think the president took the country out of lockdown when he announced that 49 other people and you can get together in a room and, uh, you know, and, and celebrate. As long as it's a church. Yeah, but I mean, how do you do that and, and not then allow a hairdresser to have clients or, you know, a restaurant to be able to have limited patrons in sight? I mean, it just... You know, it just completely didn't make sense. But I mean, not much about this lockdown has made much sense. No. Right. Epidemiological, economic or uh, human rights perspective. And um, I think that that uh, should worry all of us as citizens because I think there's some pretty chill winds that have started to blow across yeah. the country in these last few weeks. And, you know, one of my colleagues famously said, power doesn't make you, it reveals who you are. And, you know, I think that's, the unfettered power that's been given to many of these cabinet ministers over this time has revealed exactly who we who they are and just how close we actually are from a totalitarian state. And I think yeah. that should be as citizens. And it should be a rallying cry for all of us to start to stand up a bit more serious about guarding the civil liberties and not to take for granted those rights that are in the Bill of Rights because we've seen how little regard the government actually has for many of those rights and the way they've behaved during this lockdown. Okay, so we started, um, we supported the president's initial three weeks of of lockdown, and I think it was the right decision to make at the time, given the fact that there was just absolutely no information about COVID, and none of the data sets had started to really emerge. The rest of the world was still pretty much going through or a beginning of what was going on. And so I think to get a handle on the lockdown, um, on the on the virus, it was necessary for South Africa to lock down uh, in those three weeks. But certainly by week two of that lockdown, it started to become very, very obvious to us in the DA that this was not a sustainable model for South mm. Africa because of a variety of reasons. First of all, our economy was exceptionally fragile. We went into this crisis very, very low in the water. And I know that the ANC are going to use the virus as a, a means to try and, uh, and escape accountability, but there's a case to be answered for why we went into this uh, low in the water. Six years of technical recession where GDP growth had been outstripped by population growth, two full quarters of, uh, you know, of negative growth, uh, so we're in a full-blown recession. And you know, you've got to, there's going to have to be some tough questions about why we went into this thing so low in the water. But then it broke like a, like a wave over us. But also, you know, it, it, it's very easy to have a hard lockdown in a first world country where you can, you know, everyone's got a nice house or, or a relatively decent home. Mm. Uh, you know, you can fill your freezer, click on Netflix and, and stay at home. But that's not the lived reality for many, many South Africans who live in informal settlements in very, very tightly cramped uh, RDP homes with many, many other family members. And it's just not possible for them to, to self-isolate or to, to lock down. And that's why so many of them were forced to go out looking for food and yeah. and were then preyed on by an overzealous uh, police service and an army. So, you know, it wasn't a feasible model. And we realized that pretty soon on. So you may remember I almost got, uh, I almost got excommunicated yeah. from the country for daring to put out a press statement when the president announced the extension of the hard lockdown that we actually need to worry about the twin threat to life in South Africa of a spread of the virus, but yes. also uh, an economic depression. And, you know, Jeepers, it was heresy at the time. 
I don't think you can find a single commentator now who's not talking about the economy. We, we came up with the smart lockdown model. Um, and again, it was regarded as heresy at the time. And, you know, you had uh, all sorts of people from the EFF to genuinely uh, quite uh, solid reporters saying, oh, what is this nonsense, etc. And pretty much a week and a half later, government adopted a very, very similar model using often the same colors. Mm. Um, Floyd Shivambu had uh, jived at me that I'd drawn it with crayons. And when the president released it, I said, well, you better get yourself a box of crayons if you want to stay in the game, Floyd. Um, and, you know, so it's, um, yeah, it, it, was, it, it was a way to exit it. But that was obviously predicated on being able to do a number of things. First of all, to be able to build up data sets very quickly. Uh, which meant you had to be testing it between 16,000 to uh, 60,000 uh, uh, people a day. Yeah. And then you had to have at least a 24 to 48 hour turnaround time on test results because what you want to do in a model that a risk adjusted or smart lockdown model, whatever you want to call it, is to be able to move quickly with the data. Um, that's not possible and, and those models yeah. are now being completely superseded because yeah. As we sit here today, I think there's nearly 100,000 back test backlog. Um, and the truth of the matter is you can't trace, test, and track if you are not able to pinpoint uh, you know, a test result pretty quickly. So you can stop that person from going out infecting others, getting on a taxi, going into a, a big shopping center, et cetera. And so, I mean, that model is now completely out yeah. the window. I think government have, have, it, have it. So they're going through the motions of these levels of lockdown. Yeah, it's just ridiculous. The truth of the matter is, what, there's nothing to inform that moving between no. the between those lockdowns. Yes, and you know our view was um, was that what after after week three, um, the what should have happened is that uh, any business that could practice uh, PPE, social distancing, and screening should have been allowed to open. Instead, we saw government picking winners and losers and saying who could open, who couldn't, with this farcical notion that. One job is more important than another job. Every job is important in South Africa. Every job is a lifeline for South Africans to be able to provide for their families and to contribute to the economy. So our, our view then, as it is now, is that we should allow any business that can meet that criteria to open up and to and to go back to economic activity. Um, and you know, this is not an it's not a, a binary game of of either or. It's lives or livelihoods. It's a it's a balance of both. Uh, you know, if you don't mm. have economically active, active South Africans, there's no way you can fund a healthcare response. No. I mean, hospitals, the ventilators, the doctors, the nurses, those people doing the frontline testing, all paid for on the work and back of economically active South Africans. So um, you, I, I think that, that any business that can now go back and do so safely, using those principles, must be allowed to do that. And we continue to isolate the vulnerable. Um, and make sure that they are, are, are protected. So anyone with the comorbidities yeah. as, as uh, people in that age, age bracket, um, you know, above 65, 75, need to continue to self-isolate until there's a vaccine or until there is an ability to be able to, to manage it. Um, but, and of course, I mean, that means there's some businesses that are just not going to be able to open. A, you know, a, a bar, for instance, uh, or a, a gym, you know, where you've got lots of people with body fluids, et cetera, uh, you know, in, in a confined space. But there are many, many other uh, businesses that can open. Hairdressers, for instance, you could mm -hmm. open a hairdressing salon very, very easily uh, using PPE and an appointment system where your clients don't have to see anybody. So it doesn't make sense to me that we are still seeing businesses that are, are forced yeah. to close 
Uh, and I think we should leave it up to each industry to decide whether uh, and, and to come up with a plan and a protocol about how they could open and open safely. Well, as you know, uh, Jeremy, we had a, a really unpleasant election result. And you've got two things you can do uh, when you get a bad election result as a political party. You can ignore it and pretend, it as an out, pretend it's an outlier result, or you can pick through the entrails of it and look at where things went wrong. We chose, I think, bravely to look at where things went wrong. And so a report was commissioned, uh, headed by um, a ex-leader, ex-CEO, and Ron one of our- see. Yeah, Ryan could see it, Tony Leon, Michiel LaRue, and others. And, and they interviewed over 200 and odd people in the, in the party and outside the party and looked at where things went wrong. And I think their report paints a, a, a not a picture we wanted to hear, but a picture we had to hear. Mm. And so, you know, we've listened to, to the lesson we learned. As Bill Clinton famously said, my daddy never had to whip me twice for the same thing. Oh, and I thought you were going to say, I did not have sexual relations with <laughs> you. Um, and yeah, so um, the, um, you know, we, we've listened and you know, we've taken on board the fact that we've got to reestablish trust with people who we broke trust with, but we've also got to win the trust of many South Africans who've never trusted the DA before. And that is, it, it is our challenge going forward. But I think, Jeremy, for many people like you and, and many other people, we became a weather vane uh, going with the political wind rather than a road sign painting a very clear uh, direction about where we need to go. And so we've gone back to brass tacks and looked yeah. very carefully at the party from the bottom up about how we need to readjust, reassess, and make sure that we're able to um, not only win back support we may have lost, but also how we can actively go out and win the trust of yeah. people who can vote for us, particularly, I mean, there's hundreds of thousands of young people who just opted out of the political right. system, and we need to be a compelling uh, uh, alternative for them as well. You know, it's not only was the fact that we were twisting in the political wind and blowing with whatever the political cause de jour was of, of the day. I think that um, we drifted from our roots, but also I think we became far too responsory to the ANC rather than setting out our own compelling stall and vision. And so what we've done very deliberatively now over the course of this, of this pandemic, as you may have noticed, mm. is setting out our own stall and developing our own frames and forcing the ANC to engage us on, the, on our frames. Instead of us going and, and continuously you know, yapping at the ANC, we've actually set out a, a stall. And you've seen the vehement attacks yep. from the ANC on us now. But mm. that's great. When your opponent attacks you on your own frames, the economy, civil liberties, abuse of power, you're winning. And so, yeah. you know, I, I think we, the, the more the DA can set out its own compelling vision of change for South Africa and then force our opponents to meet us on our own battlefield. I think the better it's going to be for the future. Everyone knows why the country's in trouble. Everyone knows how rubbish the ANC's policies are. Everyone knows how corrupt they are. What voters are looking for and people are looking for is a party, I think, that can mm. set up a clear, compelling vision and pathway forward. And that's even more important now in a post-COVID environment where there's a significant hinge of history moment that's, that's facing us uh, in, you know, uh, down the barrel. And it can go either way. And it's important that we win that, that argument. Yeah. Well, we're heading into the future. We're heading out, setting out a compelling vision, alternative vision for how South Africa can be. We're in a low growth, high debt, high unemployment trajectory that is not sustainable going forward. Eventually, the state is going to run out of other people's money. And uh, it's going to then face serious socioeconomic challenge. And I think that 
COVID has, has, has put the fast forward button on that. So I think that what South Africa needs now is a compelling alternative vision of genuine uh, empowerment of citizens away mm. from the state, uh, genuine uh, empowerment of private enterprise away from state enterprise, and a genuine empowerment of citizens away from state control. And I think that uh, that the party that's able to do that and then to paint that in spectacular technicolor, I think is going to succeed. So we've got a policy conference later this year. We've got an elective conference as well. And hopefully this is going to solidify the path forward for, for the DA. South Africa needs the DA. And, you know, yeah. we don't get right all the time. And I'm the first to admit we make mistakes. Hell, I make mistakes. I make them every single day. But South Africa needs a growing, vibrant DA. We are the only other alternative in the in the spectrum at the moment uh, that can credibly challenge for power in centers of power in South Africa and ultimately be the core of a new majority uh, going forward. Does that include uh, coalition um, uh, governments uh, around the country? Or sorry, not governments, governance. Yes, it does include coalitions, but I think that we've learned a lot of lessons over the last five years around coalitions and who you go into coalition with and how those work. There's no use going into any coalition uh, if you have to betray your core values and principles. Mm. Then, you know, you might as well stay on the opposition benches and do it. Where you can get in government through a coalition, it has to be a coalescence of like-minded ideas and principles and a program of action. And the last five years, as I say, have been uh, uh, the school of hard knocks for us. We've yeah. some things right, we've got some things really badly wrong. And I think it's going to stand us in very good stead going forward about making a choice to say governance at all costs uh, is not the not necessarily the best thing to do, yeah. but governance where you can govern with your values and bring your values and policies to bear in an environment, I think is in a, in a credible, stable way is the way it needs to go going forward. Well, I think we've, we've learned some hard lessons. And, you know, that's why I say that that's the school of hard knocks and it's important. Mm-hmm. I think in Joburg, we were far too accommodating of the EFF and their kleptocratic tendencies. Mm-hmm. I think you're going to start to see in the coming weeks and months uh, the, uh, the folly of that start to emerge. Um, and I think that in many instances, a business decision was made to sort of turn a blind eye to some of the stuff that was going on uh, when you were looking at a far bigger budget uh, and just simply putting that in as Mm -hmm. overhead costs. And that's the sort of decision a businessman would make. It's not necessarily the decision you make as as somebody in government. Uh, Because once you turn a blind eye to corruption, you really start to go down a very slippery slope. And, And one of the reasons the ANC is in such a terrible position and why the president just simply can't move and is leading from his knees is because everybody knows everybody else's small and yana skeletons in that party. Right. And so the moment you try and move against a Didi Mabuza or an Ace Magashule, he just turns around and says, but hey, I, I remember what you did mm. you know, when you were on the deployment committee here, and I know what you did when you, you know, this tender was being discussed. And you end up then with a moribund political organization that actually just becomes a rent-seeking tick on the yeah. body politic. If you look at the two parties that did, unfortunately, did well in the last election, they were both to the left and the right of the DA, and many of them, and both of them, uh, had something in common. They were absolutely clear and unambiguous about who they were yes. and what they were standing for. And I think it's important that we 
that we uh, are very, very clear about who we are and what we stand for. Mm. When I say, you know, principle, yes, sometimes you've got to, you know, you've got to be pragmatic, but that pragmatism cannot come at the betrayal of your core values and principles. There have to be red lines that are set up. Yes. And you've got to be prepared when those red lines are breached to turn away and say, thank you very much, but this is not going to work for us. Uh, we'll rather take up our seats on the opposition benches. Well, I think there's a, a attachment, an, an emotional attachment uh, to the ANC. Uh, it's not rational uh, because any poor person living in a shack with no job, whose children are sitting in a school with 60 other kids in the class, unable to provide for yourselves and your family in a, you know, in a street where there's no electricity or running water, um, should be asking themselves that question. I think mm -hmm. that uh, that's one of the problems the DA has, is that unlike other parties in the world that where you run against your opponent's track record or their policies, you know, we're up against this big myth. You know, uh, John Kennedy famously said, you know, uh, the myth is, is actually more damaging than the lie because mm. the lie can disprove. The myth is a lot harder to disprove because it lives and exists in the in the heart and the psyche and the mind of uh, of the people that, you, that you're wanting to, to swing around. And so we're, we're up against it. I just think there's this emotional, irrational, emotional attachment to the ANC. And also I think yeah. there's, the, I'm, I'm going to also take some, you know, take some of the blame as well. I don't think the DA has been good enough mm -hmm. at setting out that alternative stall that makes, and then also being a comfortable enough environment for people to, to cross over to. And it's, that's on us. And it's something we're going to have to take into consideration that, why is it in a country with such deprivation, with one of the largest unemployment rates in the world, with one of the most unequal societies in the world, are people still voting for the party that is continues to deliver the same product? And that's got to be because there's not a compelling enough alternative. The DA has to become that alternative and it needs to work jolly hard at that going forward. And I think that this rebirth and renewal gives us an opportunity to do just that. I mean, it sounds crass, but the elephant in the room is that the media, at least social media, still suggests that the DA is a white party. And so maybe that's also a factor. Yeah, they do. And but I mean, that is also that's a myth that's driven by uh, our opponents. And as I said, you know, the myth is, is a lot harder to dispute than the lie. Because, you know, if you look at our federal council, eight of our uh, federal executive, eight of our nine provincial leaders are black South Africans, our two party spokespersons are black South Africans. Um, we've got uh, our frontline spokespeople. Our, I think our health spokesperson, Zemiwe Garube, is an excellent example uh, of that, of somebody who's there. And they're there not because of their color, but you know, because they're the best people for the job. But our membership uh, is overwhelmingly multiracial. And I think if you look in the benches in parliament as well, we're by far the most diverse party represented there. Parties to the left and right of us are, are, are almost entirely monochromatic. And mm -hmm. You know that they don't re reflect South Africa, uh, and you know we've uh, obviously diversity is one of uh, I believe is one of our strengths, uh, not one of our weaknesses. And you know I think we've got to do more to portray that. But I mean I, I look at someone like a Gwen and Gwenya, for instance. A Gwen and Gwenya, as a policy uh, head in a party, would be able to work for any major political party in the world. She is a centre of excellence. She's exceptionally bright, she's very articulate, and has been able during this, this period to help guide us uh, through some very difficult policy minefields. Mm. And come up with, I think, some ingenious, uh, ingenious things. 
Uh, and you know, anyone who thinks Gwen and Gwenya is white needs to perhaps Google her there and see that you know that this is a party that is diverse and it's been able to bring people of different backgrounds together. And I think we're the only party in the country that can actually do that. You know about uh, Western Cape secession? I just don't think it's feasible. Uh, I don't think it's feasible constitutionally or legally, and, and neither do I think it's practical. I mean, it will become one of the most heavily taxed areas in the world, uh, you know, just to just to be able to pay for the services and, and the like there. Um, I think what we should rather do is is use the Western Cape as a bastion to uh, from which to fight out the rest to the rest of the country and to and to spread the, the good governance of the Western Cape uh, out there to, uh, to other, other, other uh, parts of the country. Uh, and to bring the good news story that is the Western Cape and say what you like about Helen Zilla and, and, and people you know, have different opinions of her. She didn't talk about the capable state, she delivered it in the Western Cape. Yeah. She didn't talk about a growing economy, she delivered it in the Western Cape. And Ellen Windy's picked up that mantle and, and he's, he's pushing that. We need to do that in every other province. I don't want to belong to some enclave uh, uh, in any way. I probably wouldn't. I wouldn't uh, qualify for citizenship because I'm a Durban boy. So um, you know, I'd have to. I'd have to move out, I suppose, and uh, I'd have to be repatriated to KwaZulu Natal. Who knows? But I mean, I think that we need to to bring the vision that is the Western Cape to the rest of the country, and I think that's what my mission uh, is, and mm-hmm. and that's what you know what my focus is. Obviously, people who want to do this, this is a this is a democracy. It's a constitutional yeah. democracy, and people can, uh, you know, have hold whatever views they want and should be allowed to express them. So I'm not saying those who argue for secession should should be shut up and the like. Not at all. Uh, I just don't happen to to share those particular opinions. I, I think it would uh, it, it would be very very problematic, uh, but I respect their right to have those views. No, it's not part of our modus operandi. You know, we don't believe in leading factions or fractions. We believe in uniting and leading the whole. And uh, I think South Africa needs us. And you know, we've got to make sure that we're a party that's able to go out there and offer that compelling vision of hope and change to the rest of the country. And, you know, you can't discount good governance. Right. You know, this province was governed by the ANC and the NNP in coalition. And you know the, the provinces uh, and, and the city of Cape Town particularly uh, was virtually bankrupt when we took it over in 2000. Uh, the province wasn't in great shape when we took it over, but we were able to bring the capable state to bear and to and to turn around. And it was no mean feat. And I think Helen Zilla is not given nearly enough credit yeah. for for this turnaround. She is the most successful premier in post-democratic South Africa uh, and the Western Cape on government's own metrics is way ahead. When you've got a, a provincial government department that is the only provincial administration in the country where the health department gets a clean audit, that is a feather in your cap. When yeah. you're able to uh, you know, have a growing economy where jobs are being created, not lost, these are successes. And there is an intrinsic link between good governance and the way in which people live. And there's a good quality of life for people in the Western Cape because of the good governance. Now, I'm not saying for one instance that this is either Garden of Eden. Yeah. Uh, still, we still grapple with the inequality and uh, you know the uh, spatial inequality, the economic inequality. But I would say to you, if you if you li- uh, live in the Western Cape, your opportunities to be able to advance your life are so much greater than anywhere else in the country. And um, you know, so when you see the the lefties that put a picture of Imazama Yetu next yeah. to Park Bay. What you should be doing is putting an Imazama Yeto Kalicha next to an Imulazi or 
uh, Winnie Mandela settlements in Ekurleni. Yeah, and yeah. comparing apples with apples, and then start to say, well, who actually has better access to services, better access to water, whose children are in a school where they're at least getting a decent education, who are able to access work opportunities, who has, has better, better opportunities. And I don't think that, that any party would be able to say that that uh, Gauteng, uh, the, the East Rand, even in KwaZulu-Natal would be able to match those opportunities that are there. So there's a long, steep hill to mm. climb still in de dealing with those problems. Uh, but are we, are we there yet? No. Are we much further on the way than anywhere else in the country? Absolutely. Mm. I don't want to pretend we're angels. We mm. don't sing in the, you know, in the papal choir. Uh, we make mistakes and you know mm. we've made some errors in Cape Town, in George, other areas. But I think the big difference between us and other parties uh, is that, I mean, there's no, there's no organization that can insulate itself against people who join and then don't live up to the values and principles. But we act against those individuals uh, when, when they do wrong. And we actively move to ensure that we uh, mm. place them with people who are better able to do the job and to live out the values of the DA and governance. And, and we've done that. And it comes at great pain sometimes. Mm. The oil matter, for instance, came at huge, enormous political cost for the DA. But at the end of the day, no one will ever be able to turn around and say that the DA doesn't hold its own accountable to the same way it holds the national government accountable. But I think it is important as a government that you that you listen to your citizens, but also mm. that you empower your citizens as well to be able to move away from being passive recipients of service to actually being active citizens. Yeah. And so you know, a lot of the the reason those street uh, the the potholes get filled is that we've got active citizens who use the innovative reporting lines and uh, group WhatsApps, groups, et cetera, to be able to report them and get them fixed quickly. So, you know, I just think anywhere where you're able to empower citizens mm. and give the power into the hands of citizens, the better it is for uh, your governance and, the, and you know, the, the, the healthier your, your uh, democratic environment starts to become. Kubis wants to know, John, what do you say about the Politburo running the country at present? Well, we say it's unconstitutional and irrational, and that's why we've uh, sought direct access to the Constitutional Court, and we're tackling the Disaster Management Act itself, which is the root of these unfettered powers that the ministers are abusing at this time. Uh, there's a constitutional gap in that uh, legislation that there is no reference whatsoever to the elected legislators in the country, mm -hmm. and the oversight and accountability of the National Command Council. Uh, and that's precisely why we put our money where our mouth is. Um, we've filed our papers. The Constitutional Court has said they have an interest in hearing the matter and have asked us to advance argument why we should hear the matter. Um, we had until the 9th to file those that, that motivation. It went in on Friday. And we're hoping to get a good hearing. We're greatly heartened by the North Gauteng High Court's uh, judgment. Reino uh, de Beers. Yeah, yeah, and we've got many, many more uh, judgments before high courts around the country that we're waiting from things as from the from the um, ban on e-commerce to the exercise restrictions to the curfew uh, to and we'll be going to court on the hairdresser matter as well um, after the minister failed to respond to our our demands for a justification yeah. for it um, and so yeah I mean uh, we're opposed to it. it it has no place in a constitutional democracy even under a state of emergency. Mm -hmm. The president is required every 21 days to go back to parliament 
uh, and to justify it, and that's for good reason. Mm. It's you know it sets it very clearly that the executive are accountable to the legislature, and then Parliament can express itself. Under the Disaster Management Act, we could stay in level four or five for four weeks, four months, or four years. Mm. And the minister has no uh, reason to have to go back to Parliament. She can just keep, uh, you know, um, uh, gazetting as they've done now. They've extended it now for uh, to the full uh, area of 90 days. And, you know, we need to, to make sure that, that we protect and guard that democratic space. And, I mean, there's no provision in law, we believe, for the creation of the National Command Council. Um, that, that The Constitution is very clear. There's one executive, one cabinet, and it defines how that cabinet is made up. Um, and I think that's why you've seen the president, uh, you may have noticed, mm. has dropped it from his lexicon yes. in the last, uh, last little while. Suddenly that, you know, you know, no one's talking about the NCC anymore because they know that it is a... They're on shaky ground uh, constitutionally and legally, mm-hmm. uh, and they know that that uh, uh, Ingsoc um, body is, uh, you know, is is not one that that is going to pass muster, and so they're desperately trying to row back from it. But the thing that amuses me the most about this, Jeremy, is that if they'd just taken the DA's suggestion at the beginning yes. of the crisis and created an ad hoc committee in Parliament, they wouldn't be sitting with this terrible dilemma that they're now on, and and with a case that they must know they're going to lose. So is the DA going to attempt to hold the president accountable? And by president, I mean President Dlamini Zuma. Mm-hmm. Well, she's the prime minister. And, you know, we <laughs> mustn't take the president off the hook yet. Um, you know, a lot of people see him as sort of the good guy and, you know, with all these robes. No, he's, he's a terrible guy in my view. But anyway, carry on. Appointed all of them. He empowered all of them. Mm. They act at his, uh, and at his pleasure. They serve at his pleasure. And, you know, frankly, it is outrageous that he keeps somebody like Nosebiwe Mapisa in Kakula in her office after this debacle around Collins Causa. Um, you know, we've had 11 black South Africans that have been killed by the military and SAPS during the course of this lockdown. That should be enough for any minister to not only, you know, be sacked, but to do the honorable thing and step down. He's kept Lindiwe Zulu on, despite yeah. the fact that she openly flaunted his very lockdown regulations and was unable to do the one job she was hired to do, which is get aid to those who need it the most and the most vulnerable. And suddenly he's kept someone like Becky Klele on, who, who basically commanded the police to scop and donor um, civilians. Uh, so a lot of people it's like unethical. to right, exonerate the president. He's appointed these people. He's turned Lamini Zuma into his prime minister. And he's ultimately where the buck must stop. You know, I, I think what we need to do is to build a new majority in South Africa around a common set of shared values and principles. I think the stale logjam of politics needs to be broken. Um, and I don't think the DA's hinterland lies with parties like the EFF. I've, I've been on the record saying that I believe our, our hinterland lies in being able to bring together people around shared values and a shared program of action uh, who agree on some of the core basics, constitutionalism, the rule of law, a market-based economy, and are able to then sit down around a table and say, what are the 15 things we need to do over the next decade to get South Africa moving forward and onto a new trajectory? Yeah. And to And to start from there. Um, I don't think that at a national level it's going to be possible for us to break bread with the EFF. Uh, I think they have a fundamentally different worldview. And uh, and frankly, uh, you know, given the, the rent-seeking and... Yeah. Uh, Things that have started to emerge, and I'd really encourage everyone to read Pauli van Beek's excellent piece in Daily Maverick today, which 
you know, it, it just amazes me, and I tweeted it earlier today, saying, how is it that Poly van Veik can get to the bottom of all of these transactions with Grand Azania, Mahuna Investments uh, from the VBS thing, but the Hawks, SARS, NPA, and others are not able to do it? And, and why is it no action today? We've got, there's millions and millions of rands that have gone through those accounts uh, that, are, that have not been uh, accounted for. And I really think that uh, it is an indictment on the law enforcement and the justice system in South Africa that those guys are walking away around free and just simply able to ignore any questions that are put to them about, about what has been a grand scale theft at the bank. Well, as you know, we've gone to a policy conference later in, in the year. So let me share what my view is and certainly the view I will carry forward if I'm the leader, uh, if I'm elected as the as the full-time leader. I don't believe that the triple B double E policies have worked. I think they've been an unmitigated disaster. They've led to massive rise in the cost of doing business through price gouging. I think they've empowered a very, very small elite in the country who've got fabulously wealthy while relegating more and more South Africans uh, to the outsider economy. If you look at everyone who falls under the uh, uh, the definition of poor in South Africa, 99.9% mm. of them are black South Africans. So if you focus policies on addressing poverty and giving opportunity for poor people, um, you are automatically going to target those policies at the people who need them the most. If there happens to be 1% white, Indian and colored of that, well, so be it. I mean, you know, well, what is the, what is the problem with that? Um, but I, I think if you also look at the metrics, Triple BWE has been a complete and utter failure. Black South African households have got 10% poorer over the course of the process. And now you've got the, the unemployment queues have got even longer. And more and more poor black South Africans are locked out of opportunity than ever before. While you've got people who are ordering, you know, four Porsche Cayennes and, uh, and vehicles, etc., who have got fabulously wealthy, a very, very small elite. I think we need to have a genuine bottom-up empowerment model in South Africa that focuses on lifting people out of poverty and into opportunity regardless of their color. It's the same way the SASA system works. Uh, they don't ask you what your race is. If you qualify, you meet the threshold to qualify for a grant, you qualify for the grant. And the same should be for uh, empowerment policies in South Africa. If you qualify as someone who meets the poverty threshold, you should qualify for the assistance regardless of the color of your skin. You know, we've twice now brought a red tape reduction bill to parliament, first under uh, Henro Kruger, and he's going to, to reintroduce that. I mean, he went and studied internationally how you could cut red tape to actually allow uh, businesses to flourish and to mm -hmm. allow people to be able to access opportunity. Um, you know, if you look at, the, at our labor system in the country, it's the most, one of the most onerous in the world. And it's actually, while it may have been good and well-intentioned, mm. it has had devastating consequences for uh, employed, uh, unemployment in South Africa. You know, we've got, going into the crisis, 10 million South Africans unemployed. We're realistically facing, and some economists are talking about a 50% unemployment yeah. rate. Yeah, and that's that, conservative. That is devastating for a country, to a 50% mm. unemployment rate. And, you know, we're going to have to really sit down and rethink how uh, red tape and these job-killing policies are holding South Africa back. If we put our money where our mouth is around triple B, double E, we're in mm. court. Uh, the North Gauteng High Court heard our case last Monday on the uh, use of triple B, double E as a criteria to uh, give relief. And we hope we're mm. going to get a precedent there so that never again, whether it's an earthquake, a landslide, a flood or a drought, 
are people singled out according to their race to who qualifies for elite. Yeah. I did it on so many other shows as well. It's like a fireman arriving at a burning building and saying, we're only going to save everybody with red hair. Yeah. It's just arbitrary and irrational. You want to try and save as many people as possible. And so are we putting our money where our mouth is on these things? And we, we're taking the, these hard choices and, and doing what needs to be done. Yeah, of course we do polling all the time. And But, you know, I think that I'm not going to make the same mistakes that some of my predecessors made mm-hmm. being obsessed about polling. Um, you know, polling, I think, is a snapshot at a particular time. Mm-hmm. And it is one of a variety of tools which you must use to measure. What I want to do is focus on doing the right thing and setting out very clearly and unambiguously the DA's stall and breaking the sound barrier on on those things so that people understand what we're doing, why we're doing it, and what our vision for South Africa is. I think we've been very good in the past of lifting the bonnet of the car and explaining to people in graphic detail how the engine works, when the majority of South Africans aren't interested in that. They want to know where you're going and the best way to get there. So they focus on the destination and the best and quickest journey uh, there. And we need to spend a bit more time playing there. And I've, I'm convinced that no matter what we that if we do that and we do it well, and mm. we focus on the direct communication model that we've piloted during this crisis, where we're actually talking to people directly without the filter of uh, mainstream media uh, diluting the message or you know, skewing the message, um, I think that we will be able to, to win back, as I said, the trust of people who we broke trust with in the past. Mm. Also, I think set up a compelling offer for people who've never perhaps voted before or people who've voted before but never looked at the DA as a viable option. And if I can get that right, uh, I think that the DA will be well on the way to recovery and well on the way to becoming uh, the core of a new majority in South Africa going forward. You know, Bill Johnson wrote the other day, oh, well, the DA doesn't have an alternative economic plan. Well, we actually do. And, you know, it's precisely what we've been saying for the last five or so years. Mm. Kill state-owned, zombie state-owned entities, SAA. break Eskimo, break sell SAA, uh, reform the labor market. And I said to one of my colleagues, the problem with the DA's economic policy is that, you know, we've become a bit like Elizabeth Taylor's eighth husband on the wedding night. You know, we know what needs to be done. We just don't know how to make it different. <laughs> and, uh, you know, so many of the policies that we've been putting out there have become mainstream. So we've got to break the sound barrier again. Mm. And that's when and the team and and we'll be looking at focusing on doing and coming up with that compelling economic vision because I think the party that can set forward a clear way out of this mess post-COVID is going to be the party that prevails and I'm reminded here of what happened with uh, Churchill after the war I mean it led them through a very successful uh, fight against the the Nazis in Europe Mm. and out of office four months later because his opponents were better able to devise and define the um, the recovery and what a post-World War II uh, Great Britain would look like. We need to define what a post-COVID South Africa is going to look like and how we can get out of the mess. And I think uh, coming up with, I think your, your uh, correspondent is absolutely right there, that we keep it simple and, you know, come up with a number of key things that need to be done and then focus like a laser beam on those and make sure that we're able to um, to sell them and be held accountable for them. There's a misconception going on that we control the SAPS even in the Western Cape. And it is one of the, the problems of having a pseudo-federal system. So when I spoke earlier about Cape independence, I think that you could achieve pretty much the same results as the Cape independence ones if we were to devolve more federal powers down to provinces and to give them real powers. I mean, you've got this ridiculous situation where 
you know, you, you're given, you win power in a province, but then you're not given all the levers that you can pull, control of all the levers. So SAPS, for instance, is one of them. You've got to, you know, do it in, in tandem with uh, with national government. The same with education. They're all concurrent functions. But the SAPS is probably the worst because there's, the provincial government can't command them. So we've had a number of instances where uh, the SAPS have been chasing people at Musenberg, etc., uh, and we get the blame for it, but we've got absolutely no input whatsoever into the mm. command of thing. I think it's ridiculous. I think surfers should be allowed to surf. I've never seen two surfers riding a surfboard together. <laughs> I've certainly never seen uh, surfers, uh, and, and I mean, I'm from Durban, so I know this well. Surfers are very territorial. They don't like it if people cut into waves with mm. them. So, are you, you a know, surfer? It's perfectly. Well, I tried. Uh, I, I have the cohorts, I think, of a slot. <laughs> so I, I didn't do terribly well at it, but I did try. Um, and I've got a pathological fear of sharks. So, um, that's, uh, although somebody said to me the other day, Jeremy, that I shouldn't worry about sharks. They don't pipe politicians out of professional courtesy. So. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah, but I mean, it, you know, th that's also one of those silly regulations yeah. that comes down from national that makes no sense at all. Why should you not be able to go and surf? Why shouldn't you be able to kayak or, or fish on a beach uh, and the like? Provided you you know you, you practice social distancing and that if you are using showers etc that you are, uh, are are careful about how it's done and that you use PPE where necessary and required and you're not gathering in big clumps of people afterwards for you know um, uh, the meeting it, it just let surfers surf I, you know there's a duty of care I think the DA has when it comes to the to the city of Cape Town as well and. You know, we do also have to take some responsibility there as a party in government. So, you know, it would be very nice to be able to pass the buck and say, well, you know, what they do is their business. But they are a DA government. And, you know, I think as a party, we've got to take responsibility for them. And, you know, it doesn't mean that I agree with everything that the city of Cape Town's done. As I said, our governments get many, many things right, but they also get things wrong sometimes. And, yeah. you know, they make mistakes uh, as, as governments around the world do. And I'm happy to take responsibility for them, but uh, you know I don't certainly micromanage those as the federal leader of the party. Uh, I have an interaction with our mayors and our premier, uh, and our governance uh, unit is uh, keeps mm -hmm. an eye on what governments are doing. Um, but um, I don't sit here every day and micromanage what happens in the city of Cape Town or mm -hmm. you know the province of the Western Cape. And I think that's what Democrats do. They give people authority and power, and they get on and, and hold them accountable. And I think that's. That's a responsible way for the DA to do it, but we're certainly not going to adopt a Latuli House model where, you know, we instruct uh, you right. know, governments to to do things in a certain way or otherwise. But we will hold them accountable as a political organisation uh, if wrong decisions are made. Well, what a lot of people are wanting is a more independently run province. Absolutely, and I'd agree with that completely. You know, and I, I think that is, as I said, the problem with our model. We've got a, we don't have a federal model. We've got a pseudo federal model. In a real federal model, mm. you devolve powers to provinces. And so I think that provinces should be able to compete against each other in terms of things like income tax, in terms of... Mm. Yes. So you give each province all the levers uh, that would uh, allow them to determine the future of that particular region. And, and I think then you generally... I mean, imagine if Alan Windy could direct police resources in this province. Yeah. He's going to direct it where they need it the most. And he would certainly be supplementing it. So you don't have a police-to-population ratio of over 500 at, at, uh, at some of the hotspot police stations in the, in the province. And that you can then leverage resources to deal with 
provincial specific problems. The problem with the SAPS, for instance, is they've got a national policing plan, which they just overlay over every province. Yeah. Cape Town and the Western Capes policing needs are very different to that of the Northern Cape or in Pumalanga or Limpopo. Uh, we've got Perlamun problems here, which feed into the drug trade and they're all linked. There's very little resources yeah. to deal with the poaching crisis in the, in the country. So uh, I think the more power you can devolve to the lowest possible level, even to local government, and I think that the world is going to move in that way, uh, much for the way the ancient world moved, where you had city-states. So you didn't have nations. You had Alexandria and you yeah. had Rome. And, yeah, yeah. And, you know, you had Istanbul or Constantinople and all these all these big, you know, city-states that, that people agglomerated around and, and were the... And I think that, that as we move forward, we've got to look at ways in which we're able to devolve more power to local levels, provinces, and give them the real authority to be able to do things. So a lot of people say, oh, provinces don't work, we must scrap them because they're a waste. But, you know, it's an unfair rap because you've never given them the opportunity to mm. really reach their full potential because you allow people to compete there politically, but then you don't give them the means yeah. by which to be able to make the real change. And then, then you allow provinces to genuinely compete against each other where they mm. could actually, you know, and, and you see this in other places where there's a federal system. Yeah. You've people who are able to offer competitive business rates and they cut rates to attract uh, business to their regions that they're able to create jobs and grow their economy and you know they are able to you know offer better policing they're able to offer better housing models why should we have a one-size-fits-all housing model in the country why don't you allow provincial governments to innovate around housing mm. why do we obsess about bricks and mortar there's so many other housing innovations around the world that that we could be could be looking at yeah. implementing, which we're able to house people much more effectively. But you know, to tie provinces one hand behind their back and say, "Well, get on with governing," yeah. don't have all the levers at their disposal to that that would determine how that region works. Uh, you know, you, you 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 I think you severely constrain the real benefits of, of a federal system. I hope you're going to hold me accountable to them. Oh, we'll hold you accountable. There's no doubt. Um, but it's not me you have to worry about. <laughs> it's the electorate. Yeah, but I think people must be a little bit, you know, cut us some slack. I mean, we're not in power nationally. Um, mm. And, you know, and that's the problem with being in opposition. You don't get an opportunity to put your uh, your plans into action at a national. But I think we've walked the talk where we govern. And we don't say we don't always get it right. I'm not for one minute saying we get it right all the time. But I think we, we get it right more than we get it wrong. Um, and, you know... <laughs> Politics is about ideas and, and talking. I mean, uh, I think people sometimes have unrealistic expectations that, you know, like you get elected to parliament and like when you leave Hogwarts, you get a wand that you can, mm. you know, you, you can change things overnight. You can't. But anyone who knows me and anyone who's followed my career during the course of, of the 20 odd years I've been in politics uh, can hardly say that I'm somebody who doesn't get things done. And, right. um you know, I, that's my focus on, on getting things done and changing South Africa because I happen to believe this is the best place on earth and I want it to work. I'm passionate about this country. I'm passionate about our future. And that's what drives and animates me every day. Mm. And, and that's what gets me out of bed. And I'm going to carry on doing that. Uh, people can criticize. Uh, it's it's part of the territory. You can't be a sailor cursing the sea. Yeah. Uh, so the criticism comes with the job. But I think you just get up every day and try and make a difference. And I think that's my focus. <laughs> Thanks so much, John. Uh, have a great day further. Cheers, John. Cheers.
If you enjoyed this podcast, please visit supportgerm.com.